0: Well, if you're turning with me to page 13 in your order of service there at the top, we have arrived at actually Lord's Day 2. It says Lord's Day 1. It's Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we have already used this as our our, uh, law reading in the morning service, as we do pretty much every other week. And kids, we learned these questions and answers some weeks ago during our youth catechism time. So I'm going to ask the questions, and if you can don't look at uh, the text in your liturgy and see if you can say it with all the grown-ups. Okay? All right. Question and answer 3 through 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's our reading from the catechism, our confession of faith. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for his help as we open his word together. Almighty and everlasting God, our heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good, but we do repent of our sins and seek your grace, to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Last week, as we began our preaching series through the Catechism, going Lord's Day by Lord's Day, doctrine by doctrine, we learned that there is a distinction between the two main ways that God speaks in His Word, the law and the gospel. Now, I want to be very clear, the law and the gospel are not an antithesis. They do not oppose each other. They are united together as coming from the same God. But what we are saying is that it is two distinct ways that God speaks. And what we saw last week is that the gospel tells us the comfort that we have in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The law tells us at least a couple of things. Tells us at least a couple of things. The law tells us that we are sinners in need of grace. And the law tells us how to thank God for saving us. You are no longer under a covenant of works, seeking to earn your place in the kingdom of God. But by faith in Christ, that's the gospel, by faith in Christ, you are a member of that kingdom through his compassion, through his love. And now the law comes to you and it drives you to Christ and it tells you how to say thank you for such a a great deliverance. Well, today we're going to focus on that first use of the law that I just mentioned. It shows us that we're sinners. That's the portion of the catechism we land on today. God demands perfect love for Him and for our neighbors. That is the righteous requirement of the law. We must perfectly love God and perfectly love our neighbors. But our response to that commandment is actually an inclination toward hating them both, both God and neighbor. And Christ alone is the remedy to this problem. The commandment is given, we do not live up to it, and Christ alone is the remedy. Well, in order to understand this, let's look at the law of God, what it is, what it reveals, and what it requires. So first, the law of God, what are we talking about? When we speak of the law of God, the law of God, very simply, is what God says we either must do or must not do. Pretty simple. One 17th century reformed minister calls the law the rule of holiness. It's the standard by which we measure holy living. What is God's will for you in living a holy life? It is to obey the commandments. The law is one of the ways that God expresses his righteousness and holiness. We learn that he is these things, that he is a consuming fire of holiness when we hear him speak in the law. Well, there are many different ways to speak about this law, and so it's important to clarify a few things. For instance, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that the Jews who belonged to the nation of Israel were given a written code. So they're given a pretty specific form of God's law. But even Gentiles, the rest of the world, know right from wrong, generally speaking. Their consciences bear witness to the reality that there is a God and He has a righteous standard that all people must follow. Even completely pagan civilizations know that it is wicked to murder someone or to steal their property. That's why the great ancient law codes, the code of Hammurabi and and many others, many of which come before the law of Moses, share many similarities with the law of Moses. Because Paul tells us that the law has been written on the heart of all people. So everyone knows better when they sin against God's law. We know, generally speaking, all people know, even those who say there is no God, they know that there are some things that are right and wrong. And we believe with the Scriptures that that that, uh, awareness in the conscience comes from God testifying to His righteous standard in their hearts. But we are focusing on the law as it is given in Scripture. Directly communicated by God to human beings. It is, even for us, a kind of law code. It's been written down for us. And again, this law was given to Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But we have to, re- we have to remember, that law that was given at Mount Sinai is not only the Ten Commandments. That's the first thing that God gave. But there are many hundreds of laws. As the, the ancient rabbis tried to interpret it, and counted all up to make sure they weren't breaking any of them. They counted 613 in the law of Moses. Well, one way to divide these laws is, generally speaking, to put them into three categories. Moral, civil, and ceremonial. Moral, civil, and ceremonial. Moral meaning, basically, laws about loving one another. How do we have uh, godly charity toward our fellow image bearers? Civil laws, meaning laws about the government of ancient Israel. How is this theocracy, this nation, meant to function as a political state in the world? That's the civil law. And the ceremonial law, laws about worship. Now, are these cut and dried categories, and can all of those commandments be... Put very neatly into any of them? No. And as far as I know, nobody believes that. What we are saying is that as, we, as the, the New Testament and as the ancient interpreters of the Scriptures have come to this vast law in the Old Testament, they have seen that there are basically these three categories. There's overlap among some of the, the commandments. Uh, so no, it is not, it's not some strict way of categorizing, but it is a very helpful, ancient, and biblical way To categorize the commandments. And what we're saying is that. There has been a shift. In the ages. From the the age of the old covenant. Where all of those laws were were enforced fully. To now in this new covenant. The coming of Christ. Has changed how these laws come to us. How they apply to us. He has come to fulfill the law he says. And so he. He. The lawgiver and the one who fulfills the law changes how the law of God affects us. Our own Belgic confession says We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ. They've ended with the coming of Christ. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. And this point, hopefully, would settle lots of very silly arguments that happen culturally and online. Very silly stuff by people who have picked up a Bible, flipped to the book of Leviticus, and now are going to broadcast a very ignorant view of the scriptures online or to whomever they're, they're speaking about. But they have not done their research. And this is the point that we're trying to make. What remains for us to take up and obey here in the new covenant is the moral law. That is that portion of the, of the Holy Scriptures which abides forever, no matter the time or the culture. Is there more to say about these distinctions? Yes. Uh, but this is a brief catechism sermon, and we're trying to keep things not only moving, but basic. Okay? So we can talk more about these distinctions if, if you like uh, another time. The main point is that we do not stone Sabbath breakers anymore. As the civil law commanded that is in the law and it was holy and righteous and good when God gave it. But it is no longer to be practiced for Christ has abolished that particular portion of the law. He's at least substantially shifted it. He's abolished uh, the the way in which it lands upon us, meaning uh, that we do not use and take up the civil law for the theocracy of Israel either here in this nation or here even in the same way in the church. It comes to us differently. Do we learn from it? Yes, of course we learn from it. But it does not land on us the same way that it did for the people of old. Similarly, we do not sacrifice goats on the altar anymore, as the ceremonial law commanded. True, righteous, holy as that was, we do not do it anymore because Christ has laid down his life as the once-for-all sacrifice. But the moral law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, applies no matter the time or the culture. It is always wrong to worship graven images. It is always wrong to commit adultery, to steal, and so forth. Those commandments. And this moral law is what we have in mind here in our catechism. Further summarized into the two great commandments of Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor. That's the law of God. Secondly, the law of God does some things. And one of the things that it does is it reveals. It reveals. It reveals something crucial about us. Now, you don't have to be told that life in this world is, comes with it all kinds of misery. Suffering and guilt and shame. And your sin and the sin of others contributes to this. The law of God reveals where that misery comes from. It shows it to us. It shows us the source of that misery. Paul says in Romans 7, we read earlier, uh, Romans 7, verse 7 and 8, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Meaning he wouldn't have come to an awareness of sin if the law had not told him what God's standard was. He continues, for I would not have known what it is to covet If the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And more, Paul says in verse 13, Did that which is good, meaning God's law, that's the good thing he has in mind here, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Now, the point that Paul is making here is that the law of God is good, righteous, holy, spiritual. It comes from God, and so it is a good thing. But we have something inside of us that takes the law and seizes the opportunity of hearing the commandments. And produces sin out of that commandment. We hear God command us to do something. And our sin nature says, no, I'm not going to do that. We hear the commandment of God say, don't do that. And our sin nature seizes that commandment and says, no, I I am going to do that. I'm going to do what I want. I have a sin nature. And the law reveals this to us. Now, hopefully by way of of a somewhat helpful illustration. Let's say that a mom purchases a brand new lamp for, for uh, their home, okay? And uh, she knows there's a good chance that her kids are going to be rough with it. It's very pretty. They're going to want to touch it. They're going to want to help turn it on and off. And there's a good chance they're going to be rough with it and break it. So she sits them down and says, hey, this was an expensive lamp. Please don't touch it. All right, perfectly reasonable, The problem is now that she has set this rule, now it's all the kids can think about is to touch the lamp. And so not only do they want to touch the lamp, but they begin to argue about it. And so they rush the lamp and they topple it over and it breaks. Now the children are punished. The mom who purchased it is out of the lamp and lost her money. There's misery for everyone. Misery for everyone involved. Now the question is, was the mom's rule bad? Was it wrong of her to give that rule to the children? Of course not. But that rule stirred up something in the kids that was already there. A will to disobey. Sin was already there. Now this illustration picks on the children. But kids, this is how it is with everyone. Grown ups and children alike. We have within ourselves... Sin, And the commandment comes to us, good though it may be, and our sin nature seizes the opportunity of that commandment and goes and does exactly the opposite of what it said. The catechism uses the word misery. How do you come to know your misery? And he uses this word because it's a more general word than sin. Sin is quite specific. It refers to your transgressing of God's standard. Okay, um... It's a lack of conformity to God's law. But misery, the broader term, includes both sin and its consequences. It's miserable to sin. It is, it is miserable to experience sin's consequences. But behind all our misery, we find sin. That's If you keep going back behind, why is this bad? Why does it feel bad? Why does this come to me as suffering? Behind it all, is sin, and at the core of you is a sin nature. You are inclined to hate God and your neighbor. Your heart is bent to breaking the commandments. And so Ecclesiastes says just one testimony among many in the Scriptures, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That is what the law reveals. You cannot live up to this perfectly. Now, people would rather not think of themselves as haters. What, what do people say? It, think of the, the, uh, the, the, the most incendiary accusations that we hear in the, in the media today. That someone has done something wrong, that they are racist, that they are sexist, whatever it happens to be. And the immediate thing is, I'm not that. I'm not that thing. That's not who I am. That's how we tend to respond when we read, I'm inclined to hate God and my neighbor. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, if you live your days generally not stabbing people and stealing cars and, uh, and, and, and those kinds of things, um, if you're not lying under oath, then it feels very difficult to see the truth of this teaching. But what if it is indeed true that God's law touches every part of you, even the intentions of your heart? What if God's law is not a series of suggestions or helpful guide only, but demands from the judge of all the earth? When we humble ourselves and listen closely to the law, we begin to see we really do twist the truth For our own benefit. We really do have a problem of using others for our own gain. We really do try to hide from God when we know we've done something wrong. We do as our first father did, Adam. He knew and he fled. We know our conscience bears witness against us, it tells us we have sin deep down, a sin nature. The law reveals this terrible disease. But God uses that, that terrible revealing, to drive us to Jesus Christ as the only remedy. We do not find the remedy in ourselves. The further down you will go, you will find only more ugliness. That is why if you ever have met an an older saint who has walked with the Lord for many, many years, and if they have walked in, in humility with the Lord... They tell you, time and again, I am wicked, and the longer I live, the more I see. To you, they seem holy, and every year they get holier. But they see themselves as more and more wicked because they recognize their need for the Savior. They recognize and believe to be true what the law tells them. That's what the law reveals. Lastly, lastly, the law of God does something else. It requires If all the various commandments of Scripture are simplified, they come down to these two. Love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. He is the all-sufficient, ever-living God. And He not only demands, but He deserves our total allegiance. You did not make yourself. He deserves for us To give all of ourselves to him all the time. It is owed to him by virtue of your being made. And this love for God is to also include love for your neighbor. You know, by loving your neighbor, you are also loving God. Because we love God with all of ourselves. And an expression of that is to love everyone that is around us. This is the teaching of the Old and the New Testaments. It is the teaching of the law and the prophets. It is the teaching of Christ himself. But as we hear this teaching, as we hear it, it more and more reveals that awful inclination to hate. And the only hope is Jesus Christ. By hearing the law, and the reason why we have that crucial moment in our services every week, the reason why we subject ourselves to that, is because our conscience does it anyway. Number one. And number two, because God commands us to confess our sins. But number three, because when we confess our sins, it liberates us. It takes the burden off of our shoulders so that we might, with new freedom, love God and love others as He's commanded us. Driving us to Jesus Christ is the only remedy for wicked sinners. Jesus reminds us, that the one who gives the commandment is our God. Jesus says, love the Lord, your God. And uh, I, uh, I hasten to remind you that that language of your God and our God is the language of the covenant of grace. I will be your God, he says. And he promises to the people of God forever, I will be your God. And so when he tells you to love him, you are loving the one who has purchased you, who has made you his own. He has become your God through the blood and righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. In his earthly life, Jesus alone heard the commandments of God and said yes every single time, doing the work of God perfectly on our behalf. There was no sin in him trying to use those commandments, seizing the opportunity that the commandment gave to him to wield it for his own selfish gain. Not once did he do this in thought, word, and deed. He has worked a perfect obedience for you, a perfectly righteous record. It is perfect and spotless and without stain, so that when God's command comes to you, you must perfectly love him, and you must perfectly love your neighbor as yourself. Your only hope is in Christ who has done it. You must receive that righteous record from him who has done it in your place. He gives it to you who rest in that achievement. So yes, brothers and sisters, you must allow the law to show you your misery. You're miserable anyway, if you're honest. So let the law show you your misery. The law of God tells you but do not be crushed by it. Do not be crushed by this law. Allow it to drive you into the arms of the lawgiver who has laid down his life. He is kind and gracious. He forgives us all our sins. He responds to our hatred with love. And when you have been lifted back up on your feet again from the pit that you have dug from yourself, with renewed love for God, obey his commandments. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, you build your church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so we pray that you would bless our congregation to grow in their teaching. And as we have heard the true doctrine proclaimed to us, by your great blessing may it be preserved among us, and propagated through us by our lips and lives to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all the people of God set together. Amen.